This podcast contains depictions of violence and abuse perpetrated against children, including sexual abuse and rape, as well as suicide, institutional racism, intergenerational trauma, and a bit of swearing. But there's also friendship, love, inappropriate puns, and general skullduggery. The survivors of Lake Alice want their stories to be heard. But do take care when and where you listen. Stuff Podcasts. They didn't see the size of a kid that needed help. Because you're treating us bad, I'm going to steal your money. We were shifty. <laughs> shifty as. They say, right, we'll take this land and we'll make a better life for them. Were we that terrible? From Popsock Media and Stuff, this is The Lake, a podcast about the children of Lake Alice. Welcome to episode one, Two Little Boys. The year is 1981. New Zealand is being convulsed by the division and violence of the Springbok Rugby Tour, where racism has clashed with one of the nation's favourite pastimes. But a young man with a mullet and a missing front tooth is angry for a different reason. He speeds down a country road and then slows down he idles through the gates of some kind of institution. He's tried to leave this place behind before, to move on, but it's followed him. In his boot, the man has a semi-automatic rifle, a pistol and ammunition, and he's looking for someone. I always told him I'm going to kill you. He said, one day I'm going to come and I'm going to kill you. And that was the day. Hi, I'm Aaron Smale. I'm a journalist and photographer from New Zealand. Over the past five years, I've been writing stories on people's experiences in state custody in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I've met a few characters in that time, like this guy, Rangi Wycliffe. They call me Pedro. Pedro. <laughs> and his mate, Tyrone Marks. Give me the fucking morning. <laughs> They're both pretty mischievous. They're not very big guys, but they're big personalities. They kind of remind you of a troublesome cartoon duo, like Dastardly and Muttley, if you're old enough to remember the cartoon. And actually, Tyrone has Muttley's laugh. (laughs) As I've got to know these guys, I've come to care for them a lot. I'm constantly astonished at the horrific trauma they've both been through. I've also been amazed at the way they've dealt with it. One of their survival tactics is a pitch-black sense of humour. 
They've also got a inappropriate pun for every occasion. You can hear it as we set up our gear, positioning a long shotgun mic in front of Rangi's face. And don't think of it as a cock. <laughs> Good one, bro. That's really made me feel relaxed. Now every time I look at it, I'm just going to see Doug. <laughs> Tyrone and Rangi are 60 and 61 now, but they're still the larrikin 10-year-olds that they were when they first met. There's the dick jokes. The general mischievous behaviour the whole time. Neither of them likes eating vegetables, but they've got good reason for that, which I'll tell you about later. And they don't just question authority, they defy it. But their distrust is well-founded. They've been on the receiving end of some of the worst things people can do to children. It's given them an insight into the worst of human nature. But they also have a deep appreciation for other human qualities, like loyalty and laughter. We are so proud that we're still above ground and it's still switched on. Yes, we're a little bit distorted here and there. But what do you expect after going to shit like that? Rang and Tyrone met as kids, and a lot of what they went through, they went through together. But then at some point, their lives went in different directions. And when I came into the picture, they hadn't seen each other for over 30 years. Then I figured out they knew each other and managed to reconnect them. This was about four years ago. Since then, they've been in contact regularly. Tyrone likes to drive down from Hamilton to stay with Rangi at his home on the beach on the Kapiti coast an hour and a bit north of Wellington City. Look where Rangi lives. He's got the ultimate dream, right, the ocean, right in front of there. You know, all those times we've been incarcerated, wherever it is, we'll have, a picture, we'll have a picture of yeah. a, um, the sea and a boat yep. or whatever. It's a dream when you're sitting in the cell wondering, yeah. if I win a lot of money, I'm going to get a, a house next to the beach with a little yeah. white picket fence. Rangi's talking about his time in prison, the dreams he had in those cells. It is, it's a place where I want to die. I'm going into my 60s. Um, I probably haven't got much longer on this earth, uh, but I would like to die on that brandy out there watching that sea. Uh, that's how much this house means to me. I, I was born next to the sea in Makatu, and so I've got this, this thing about the sea and sea air. I believe it brings me good health, and I love it here, yeah. But this story isn't just about the two men I've come to know. It's also about the two little boys they once were. Actually, well, it's going to show you. Let me introduce you properly to Tyrone Marks. Tyrone looks like he could be in a Pirates of the Caribbean or a Martin Scorsese film. There aren't many photos of him, and none of them from when he was a kid. No, I wasn't uh, very photogenic, apparently. <laughs> I think the most photos I've ever got is, is on Crime Watch or something. <laughs> Have you seen this man? He's got a 70s handlebar moustache, which obscures the gap in his front tooth. And he's got a fondness for Italian suits and Jag V8s. That's Tyrone giving my producer Kirsten a fright. Behind the mischievous demeanour, though, is a story of a lost childhood and a family that struggled. Now in this photo is two of my brothers and my youngest sister. Now out of that whole photo, 
The only one alive is this one. He's pointing to his younger brother. Tyron's dad was an immigrant from England, with Sicilian and Irish heritage. He'd fought in World War II and saw his comrades die in battle. Tyron's mother was Ngāti Raukawa. He was born in 1960, one of the middle kids out of 13. Tyron's house in Hastings, on the east coast of the North Island, was full of noise and life. But there was never a lot of money around. This is what led social workers to start visiting the family when Tyrone was three. Then, when he was eight, one of the social workers coaxed him into her car. She said to me, oh, we must buy Tyrone some new clothes. We're going to get you some new clothes. And I thought, fuck, and I, yeah, yeah. So we'll go to Hastings and we'll buy you some new clothes. Tyrone was pretty excited. Flash new clothes weren't something he got a lot of in his home. But that wasn't what happened. I think that the deal was already done. Had already been authorised by, by the parents. And I ended up put on a plane. I'd never been on a plane before. And away I go. I don't know where I'm going. It was a long time on that plane. I didn't actually know where I was. Well, I knew I was a long, long way from Hastings. And I come off the plane and nuns, these nuns, approach me and says, well, right, you're coming with us. You know, and I thought, well, shit, the long plane ride, they must be special clothes. <laughs> so, <laughs> they must be special clothes, he says, for nuns to be making them. They must get the nuns to, um, you know, measure me up. Anyway, they put me in their nun car. I still had no idea, you know, why am I here and where are my new clothes? And when am I going home? But no one said a word. Were you scared? Uh, No, I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared of nothing. The year was 1969. Tyrone had been sent to a place called Sunnybank Orphanage in Nelson, at the top of the South Island. You didn't actually have to be an orphan to end up at Sunnybank. It was a place for boys from broken homes, a dumping ground for poor Catholic kids, basically, aged between 5 and 15. Sunnybank was run by nuns, and little Tyrone found it hard to follow their rules. When you have a meal, you're not allowed to talk. At the table, you, you, that's forbidden. You'll get a hiding if you talk later on. Of course, I'm full of talk. At home, we talk any time. Even when we're eating dinner, we talk. So that's, that's the first problem I've <laughs> the first problem I have with the nuns, yeah. is that I started talking and no-one would talk back, and so that must made me talk even more. Tyrone's eight. He's just been pulled out of the only home he's ever known without any warning or explanation. And while he says he wasn't scared... Oh, no, I was angry. No-one was telling me anything, and I'm just in a place that I don't know, and they've already given me a hiding, and uh, I've got no clothes. It's like you've kind of been kidnapped. Tyrone got to know the new routine pretty quickly. Everyone had to line up 
before you went to bed and you had to show your underpants. And if you had any gold in them, you had to scrub them and then re-show them again for another check, brush your teeth and then go to bed. I'd done this a few times and I thought, fuck this, I've had enough of this shit. You know, because I always had to scrub mine because I had fucking gold in them all the time. And I just went straight into this nun's face. He got a thrashing for that, for throwing his skitty undies in the nun's face, which didn't exactly improve his behaviour. After the hiding, I went down to the farm where they had cows and shit, and I opened the gates and just let them roam off onto the road. Went up to the church, started smashing all their windows. That was the end of my uh, stay with the nuns. They just packed me up, threw me in the airport, and then rung the the whoever services to come and get me. Oh my god! So no, I was there by myself. We'll come back to Tyrone, but first let's get to know Rangi a little better. At his house on the beach, there's some family photos on the wall. In one of them, there's a kuya, an old woman with a striking moko kawai, a Māori chin tattoo. There's also another picture of the same woman, with Rangi as a toddler. This is Rangi's great-grandmother, Miriama Pariata Wikirifi, who had a strong presence in his life when he was very little. But when Rangi was two or three, Miriama died. She was 97. Rangi ended up in Makatū, about three hours southeast of Auckland, with his grandfather and his new partner. While we don't know who's responsible, we do know that Rangi was seriously physically abused there. My grandmother showed up at a uh, funeral and observed a child, who was myself, covered in burn marks, cigarette burns being, being put out, the hair missing from my scalp, the suffering from malnutrition. Rangi's grandmother took him to live with her in the suburb of East Tamaki in Auckland. I would have been three, three years old. Do you have much memory of that period or your grandmother? I have fond memories of my grandmother. I remember hugging me a lot. I always remember peanut butter and jam sandwiches and lots of cups of tea. There was no abuse at all from her. But apparently I was emotionally disturbed and, and did some irrational stuff. Rangi was a really active kid, but he was also acting out because of the abuse he had suffered. Apparently I was a cute little bundle of energy ready to explode like a volcano. A cute little bundle of energy ready to explode. Rangi's grandmother loved her moko, but she didn't know what to do with him. She approached social welfare for help, their solution was to make him a ward of the state because he was not under proper control. So Rangi was five when he went into his first foster home across the road. I remember starting school there and I remember going to school in harness. I suppose the word you could say now is hyperactive. They couldn't control me, they couldn't. So they actually tied me to a desk. Using harnesses for hyperactive kids isn't that unusual. You don't want them running into traffic. But they'd forgotten me on a couple of occasions where I spent the whole night in the classroom. Uh, they, they never got me for lunch. When all the other kids went out for lunch, I, was, I never had any and was left in that harness. I learned to 
get out of that harness and steal other kids' lunches so I could have something for myself to eat. That's what I was like. It was like a donk harness with a leash that was used quite a bit on me. From his first home, Rangi bounced through a series of other foster homes, 13 different placements in 12 months. Most of them were in Auckland, but there were a couple further north in Northland. In the social welfare files from the time, Rangi's challenging behaviour is mentioned a lot. Rangi has fond memories of some of his foster parents. There were um, foster homes that I went to that were loving, caring people, but they were the stopover, what's called a stopover homes. They were homes that were provided for us until we got a permanent home in, within the social welfare system. And these people were awesome. Other homes he remembers for different reasons. But it was when I left those homes and went into the permanent homes that the abuse was horrendous. While Rangi was shuttling around foster homes in Auckland, Tyrone had been sent further south. He ended up in a place called Campbell Park, an imposing Victorian-looking building in North Otago. It's about three and a half hours south of Christchurch, the South Island's biggest city by population. In other words, it's in the middle of nowhere. The building looks like a castle, and it was actually used on the set of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I was blown away. It's just scenery. You know, I'd never seen big, you know, hills and castle-type thing. Big fields and streams and stuff, and uh, I was actually quite impressed. Campbell Park was built by a wealthy Scotsman in the late 19th century. It was then taken over by the Education Board in 1908 and repurposed as a residential school for, and this is their words, feeble-minded boys or backward children. I met someone who told me about visiting their cousins there. She said that you'd barely see a Māori in the South Island, but when you got to Campbell Park, there they all were. Uh, What I liked about Campbell Park is uh, we were allowed to light fires. Wrong. (laughs) And under trees. Well, we'd already uh, done a bit of pyromania when we were very, very young and quite enjoyed burning things down. And these idiots uh, were saying it was okay to have fires underneath trees, as long as you were good about it. Well, it didn't take long before they um, banned fires because me and my newfound friends ended up burning big trees to the ground. So the fires were banned. The kids at Campbell Park were sorted according to their age. Tyrone was eight, so he was in with the other young ones, up to about 10 or 11. The middle kids were around 11 to 14, and the big ones were 14 and older. And they slept in cottages around the property. The one that I was in, the, the person in charge was Drake, John Drake. John Drake, or Jack Drake as he was known then, was in charge of the dorm that housed younger kids like Tyrone. Drake played guitar. He was an amateur photographer. He drove a combi van. Apparently, he looked a bit like Buddy Holly. Thick-rimmed glasses... Short back and sides. When Tyrone arrived at Campbell Park in 1969, Drake had already been there for a while and had worked in other boys' homes since 1958. Drake was also a sexual predator. At first I seen him in doing things to, that looked like that ain't normal. 
or inappropriate with having other people on his knees and his hands going where they shouldn't bloody be and, you know, and um, you got to remember, we're little kids. And then he did it to me. Drake wasn't the only predator, but I've heard a lot of stories about him from a lot of people. We now know that concerns were first raised with the police about Drake in the 1970s, but there was no proper investigation, and he was allowed to keep working in the homes for another five years. Decades later, in 2007, another complaint was made to the police about Drake, but by the time that one was investigated, Drake was too sick to speak to the police. The Ministry of Social Development has since acknowledged that Drake was a sexual predator and the police have apologised for delays in their investigations. Drake died in 2011. He was never charged. At Campbell Park, Tyrone remembers one other dodgy teacher in particular because he got revenge on this abuser by stealing his mini. Shouldn't leave the keys in it, dickhead. (laughs) Campbell Park was a couple of hours away from a psychiatric hospital called Cherry Farm. It was also close to the School of Psychiatry at Otago University in Dunedin. So there were a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists in the area who were ready to comment on Tyrone's behaviour and to prescribe him medication. I'm being given liquids and pills to swallow. I didn't know what they actually were and why I was given them. This is from the notes of Wilson, the principal of Campbell Park at the time. Tyrone's behaviour continues to be erratic. Since he was put on mineral twice daily, in addition to dilantin, there's been a period of comparative tranquillity. It is felt, however, that the erratic pattern will continue and that as he becomes used to the added medication, there will be a return to bad behaviour. Mineral is an antipsychotic drug for adults that's now banned because it was linked to fatal heart attacks. Dilantin is considered the grandfather of all epilepsy medications. But Tyrone didn't have epilepsy. You're making me a meth addict when I'm fucking eight years old. Principal Wilson's notes go on. It may be that there is no alternative to eventual hospital placement. Why didn't they just buy me a dog collar with a little bit of electricity going through? Well, they just did it much easier to me, just put them in a harness. Well, mine would have had to have a chain by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> we were that terrible. For us to be treated like that as human beings. We were just fun-loving people, you know? The thing is, they took me from home, right? I wasn't in trouble. This is Tyrone talking now. This is a result of them making a decision that they could look after me better. This is about, you know, someone that's got a big family that can't financially take care of them properly in terms of feeding them enough, right? So they say, right, we'll take this lad, Uh, you know, we'll take Rungi, we'll take all the other ones, and we'll make a better life for them. A better life for them. And then this. In all, five of Tyrone's siblings were taken into state care institutes and offered a better life. Rangi's better life meant moving about from foster home to foster home, where a lot of the time, he was treated like a slave. People used me to do their cleaning. There was a lot of sex abuse if I didn't achieve a certain standard of cleanliness, grades at school. 
As a matter of fact, they pretty much will look for any excuse to sexually abuse me. And when I say sexual abuse, I mean sodomy and rape. The things that happened to Rangi during this period are terrible and relentless. We're not going to tell you every single detail at this point. There are some things that we will revisit later. But just know that as bad as it's about to get, the reality is worse. Oh, well, let's get something straight. It was fucking terrifying. To have to go shoot something like that as a child. Was it the hardest part for me is keeping a lid on that little boy when I'm telling this story and not wanting to cry. I find it extremely hard to express the, the sorrow, the grief. The guilt, the shame, and knowing that there's nothing you can do and that you're going to grow up with those images for the rest of your life. So when I was given to a family that didn't abuse me, I never forgot them, you know. There were very few. The rest were just constant, constant sex abuse, constant slavery. That reflects in my work ethic now. People see how I keep my properties clean, how I keep my homes clean. And people say to me, oh, you, don't, you must have good training. And I've told them that that's from institutional training. Now I'm in OCD territory. Everything I do now is meticulous, fastidious, and no room for mistakes. Rangi's house is spotless. When we break for lunch, he starts fussing, sweeping up crumbs, putting dishes straight in the dishwasher. This is behaviour he's learned through brutal punishment regimes in foster homes. I got to a stage as a little boy to each home that I went to, foster home, I would look at these people and look at the woman and the man and they could wonder what he's like, if he's going to be a creeper, is it going to be out in the tool shed, you know, so I was constantly vigilant for um, males because I was never ever touched by a female. I'm talking about a little boy that's constantly alert for that. I was looking for predatory behaviours and responses and, and characteristics that they give. After a while, when you've been sexually abused that much, you can actually read these people coming. As well as foster homes, Rangi did get put back with his family from time to time. But that didn't go well either. My dad did a lot of things to me. He pulled me up on Mount Eden, up on the motorway. Mount Eden is a prison in Auckland, built in the 19th century. That's you, Rangi. That's where you're going. My father constantly reminded me about what what my path in life was going to be and reminded me that I was just like my mother. I was short, I was ugly, and I was useless. I ran away from my dad's place. He scared the living shit out of me. You know, I spent my time on the streets, but I used to go down to the the creek and I built built myself a little hut and had a little fire. I'd steal cans of baked beans from the hotel shopping centre. For me, it was the happiest moments of my life when I 
I loved it. I, I, I lived the life that I wanted to live. I lived in a hut. I, I stole my food. I um, there were loaves of bread that they delivered back in days to those days to houses every morning. I pushed milk, loaves of bread, and I so I lived quite comfortably. And and yeah, I, even now when I speak about it, I, I have that <laughs> that little boy freedom. How old were you? I was uh, six, seven. Yeah. I could survive. I, I learned very quickly to survive out of rubbish tins. I learned how to thieve. I learned I learned everything there was to learn as far as I was concerned to keep myself fed and, and safe. It's shocking to reach through my farm myself and see what was taken on. Rangi got into the South, took 50 cents. Rangi got into the other house, he took a apple, burglary, theft. Rangi was running away to escape predators and he had to steal to survive. Things like apples, 50 cents. But these minor infractions were being recorded by welfare. And I was absolutely stunned that they didn't see the signs of a kid that needed help. For me, I learned to curl up in a ball in, in places that uh, were miserable and freezing and cold. Uh, but I was happy to be there because it was there were no abusers, there were no men coming at me. You know, I was in what I thought was, uh, you know, the right place. This is the late 1960s and early 1970s. Kids that got too old or were too much trouble for foster homes were moved on to welfare institutions. There were about two dozen main institutions in New Zealand at the time, run by the New Zealand government. They were largely filled up with Māori and Pacifica kids. Some homes were smaller, with around 30 to 50 kids. But places like Campbell Park were bigger, with about that same number in Tyrone's dorm alone. Kohitere and Levin had over 100 at any given time. The youngest kids in these homes were about 8. The oldest was 16. Rangi was 10 when he went into his first home at Orwairaka in Auckland. i never forget the door. I'll never forget the stretching out piece of concrete, looking up and seeing the lock, lockwood the opening of their door and the closing, Dad's already gone. I'll never forget getting told to take my clothes off, going into the cell, getting doused with this powder stuff, having a cold shower and then put into a cell. Yeah, I'll never forget standing at that one day, wondering why I was there. What did I do? I cried. I cried all night. And then the next morning they unlocked the boys and I got a hiding for keeping them up all night. And I was made to run around that yard for punishment for disrupting all the boys during the night with my crying. From Owairaka, Rangi was moved south. Tyrone was shunted north from Campbell Park, and they both landed in the Lower North Island. One of the welfare homes in these parts is Holdsworth School in Whanganui, and it's here that our two little boys first crossed paths in 1972. Oh, my memory of Rangi is um, 
basically skeldaggery from the very beginning because he was a lot like I was, totally resistant. And so on that basis, we're going to be best mates. Rangi was 10 and Tyrone was 11. Now, these two as best mates is either good news or bad, depending on where you're standing. It was great for them, maybe not so great for the adults trying to control them. The good thing about that was that we did everything together. It was up together, down together. It was getting into trouble. It was about backing each other up and creating what we thought was the, you know, the, the real way of living. All, all I wanted to do was, you know, um, go out there and have fun, take everything. No one's going to give it to you. Just take it all. Many of the people I've spoken to who went through New Zealand's welfare homes describe them as being like a prep school for prison. There hasn't been a great deal of research done on the relationship between state care and prisons, but where there is research, it's clear. For example, in 2010, a survey found that 83% of prison inmates under 20 had spent time in state custody. In many ways, the homes of the late 1960s, 70s and 80s were run like prisons. For example, while the kids were officially wards of the state, staff often called them inmates. They unlocked the doors and you'd have to stand by your door and they'd nod and then you had to step out of your cell. And then they'd nod again and then you had to run across to the dining room, pick up your meal and run back. The only communication was nodding. No, no, no. Punishments for bad behaviour varied. Rangi and Tyrone remember spending a lot of time behind a push mower. We'd look at each other, and then down went the mower, and we're gone. See you later, over the fence, bye-bye, bye-bye, pork pie. The boys became expert at escaping. If there was a gap, they were through it. Tyrone would keep them busy, I'd jump the fence, do the berg, back into the classroom, play the part of Mr Anderson, share the goodies... Because he, you know, we sort of had a thing going there. I, I was the typical croc, and I was into it. Breaking out, doing a burglary, and then heading back to class. We were shifty. <laughs> shifty as. And, and whenever, actually, no, it wasn't we got caught when I got caught. Tyrants always seemed to get away. <laughs> whenever I got caught, it was instant, you're going to the block. We knew it was you. <laughs> and we know your mate Marks is somewhere somewhere in the vicinity that's got something to do with this. Straight up, they knew. They'd find this stuff, you know, and they'd go, well, these, that watch is from that house, and that bottle of piss is from that house, that fruit is from that house. We didn't comply. We would not comply because they were abusing us. For each time they abused, there was a reaction, which was, bye, <laughs> I'm going to create havoc out in society to let them know that the abuse is going on. In the meantime, I'm going to have fun. And my fun is this. Uh, we were extremely fit because we were punished so much and given so much physical training, they were just building us up to be super fit athletes, which we were. Every time sports days comes up, me and Tyron were the favourites to be picked for long-distance running, the runners were the runners. The kids that went through New Zealand's welfare homes learned pretty quickly that most people couldn't be relied on. So when they found a friend who had their back, they held on tight to them. That's why me and Tyron are so close. 
And that's what I mean by this bond that is created in such horrendous environments. I'm proud of them being my friends. I'm proud that they were the ones that lifted me on my journey of hurt and pain and provided me with humanity. They provided me with a sense of belonging. You know, these guys, I, I slept under their homes. I never had a home. I slept in their gardens underneath their bedroom windows where they would hand me our food. And that frog, my Pākehā mate, you know, he's one of my best friends. He had me under his house, his mum knew, his dad knew, his sisters knew, so it's all right, it's only rangi. You know, he's no, no trouble, just wants a roof and a feed. So I don't think without that, I'd be here now. When you get to know the stories of kids in welfare homes during this time, you quickly notice that their lives were chaos. They were constantly being moved from home to home in short stints. Tyrone calls it doing the tour. There were a number of reasons why kids were moved around. At Hokio Beach School in Levin, just north of Wellington, it was an age thing. At about 12, they would be moved on to Kohitere. Sometimes it was about numbers and overcrowding. When Owaraka Boys Home got too full, they sent some of the boys on to Weymouth Girls Home. Kids who were considered to be too much of a handful would be moved on to somewhere where there was stricter control. By the time New Zealand got to the mid-70s, the homes were packed. Tyrone was 11 when he turned up to Holdsworth School, and who did he see? As soon as I get there, I had to take a double take because I saw fucking Drake. Jack Drake, the combi-driving paedophile that Tyrone had met at Campbell Park. Also there was the other dodgy Campbell Park teacher, both of the sexual predators who had assaulted Tyrone during his time there. You know, and I thought, these two assholes, they come all the way from there because, what, to meet me here and, and, and carry on, you know. So you get to Oldsworth and you know. I get to Oldsworth and I see these two assholes. Tyrone tried to warn his new mate Rangi about the abusers. But he had warned me while I was there about you know, them and I was already aware it was too late, I'd already been done. Yeah, so yeah. The warning came too late. Faced with his abusers again, Tyrone does what he's learned to do best. And I went, oh my fucking God, I've got to gap it. You know, at the first opportunity I've got to get it, I've got to gap it, I'm not going to put up with this shit. Tyrone gathered a few of his mates and geared up to escape. I think there was actually eight of us. It was a big crew, this one. We fenced the bikes from private houses, wherever we could get one. But we all had one. We had one each. You know, some were girl bikes, boys, and we didn't give a, we didn't really care as long as the wheels turned and uh, you could ride them, and it was sweet as. The kids stole bikes and took off down the hill. Tyrone reckons it was late afternoon, early evening, just on dusk. We were going to Wellington. How far did you get? Just on the other side of the airport, or where the Wanganui Bridge is. But we were on the other side of it, on a side road, you know, ready to come out and meet the main road. I was across the other side of the road, and then I came straight over to where they were. That's when I got run over. Tyrone was hit from behind by a car. 
and dragged underneath the vehicle. The guy tried to carry on after he ran me over, um, but the boys surrounded the car. And, you know, being only young, they started punching in the window and stuff because he was going to try and drive on. I'm still underneath the car. Decades later, one of the boys, Andrew Brown, told Tyrone what he saw. He said, when they pulled the car off me, he could see my head all split open. He said there wasn't one part of the bike that wasn't sticking through me. And that he thought that, you know, I'm pretty much dead until I moved. This story has been backed up by a couple of boys who were there. Brown, who's a hospital orderly now, brought it up with Tyrone recently. Another guy, Tony Jarvis, has given evidence about it. I remember being partly picked up off the road. I was sort of semi-conscious at that stage. And don't ask me what happened after that, because I'm knocked out. When Tyrone woke up, he was in an operating theatre. He was surrounded by surgeons. Somehow, he asked what time it was. It was 2.30 in the morning, and there was a song playing in the background. It was... (laughs) It's a hard case fucking song, but I actually liked it. And it was Bye Bye, Mr. American Pie. Have you heard that song? Yeah, well, you, you know the rest of the words. This will be the day that I die. He didn't die, but he must have been close. Because when he woke up, there was a priest preparing last rites. I had a dislocated pelvis. I had broken my back. It, I'm lucky I didn't split the the spinal cord. Just, I had nerve damage, dislocated hip, massive injuries from the puncture. I'd lost heaps of skin from being dragged because I only had shorts and a shirt on. I think I had 286 stitches in my head. Tyrone was in a full body cast for four months. It should be noted that my parents were informed, but they never came, didn't bother. I had one visit from Holdsworth where they brought a bunch of other kids, but that was only a show, a parade, to show them that this is what happens if you run away. My legal guardians as such... He means the state. ..just left me there to die. Tyrone was eventually discharged and sent back to Holdsworth. His injuries hadn't completely healed. He couldn't run away like he used to. Despite this, the principal wrote in Tyrone's file that he continued to abscond. What the fuck? I didn't run, I didn't, um, there was, I didn't run ever again. The absconding was then used to justify moving Tyrone on again. There's a letter that accompanied him on his next journey from the principal of Holdsworth, Marek Puerza. His admission is due to his persistent absconding and subsequent burglaries and other misdemeanours whilst missing from Holdsworth. Since the last case support, Tyrone has continued to abscond and it would appear that no form of deterrent works in modifying his behaviour. Previous psychiatric opinions indicate hospitalisation, to which I now turn as a final resort. From the time he was eight or nine, 
experts had looked at Tyrone and seen a lost cause. They mapped out his path right from the start, and that path was always heading to a psychiatric hospital. What these experts didn't seem to consider was that Tyrone's behaviour might have had something to do with the abuse he was suffering at their hands. It was the same with Rangi. His behaviour as a kid makes a lot more sense if you consider the trauma he'd already gone through. But the response from the state to their behaviour was to inflict further punishment and send them on to harsher institutions. After touring the welfare homes, there was only one stop left for kids that no one else knew what to do with, like Tyrone. That's the fucking... You know. When we get to Lake... Are we getting to Lake Hills? Yeah, OK, I've just fucking landed in the lake then. See, <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the effects. OK, action. It was the um, grounds person that was taking me for a ride just to get a couple of tests that I'll just take a few minutes. I'll just be there for, you know, a very short time and he'll come back and pick me up. Well, I never, I never seen him again. And I said, well, I'm not meant to be sleeping here. <laughs> I'm on a 10 minute test. And they says, like, you're not fucking here for a 10 minute test. This is your new home. Tyrone has landed at Lake Alice Psychiatric Hospital. Coming up in the next episodes of The Lake... Every time I have a shower, I see those white lines coming to from CT every day. What really happened at Lake Alice? I will never in my lifetime forget the complete resignation of here it is. Here's probably the worst thing that could happen to me. We clung to each other out of fear, out of terror. I said, please stop the leaks, I don't want this. If it's going to hurt, please. My fist in his cup, and he says, that's a lovely cup of tea. New Zealand should not be able to commit atrocities like this and get away with that. It's time to turn around and show and tell, I think. The Lake was researched and hosted by me, Aaron Smale. It was produced, edited and scripted by Kirsten Johnston and Melody Thomas at Popsock Media. Tyrone Marks helped support survivors during our interviews. Ben Lemmy wrote music for the series and recorded the narration. Mark Chesterman did sound design and the final mix. At Stuff, our script advisors were Eugene Bingham and Adam Dudding. And the commissioning editors were Carol Hirschfeld and Patrick Crutzen. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air.